You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. You are the judge of all the earth, and you shall do what is right. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and yet at the same time you will by no means clear the guilty. Holy God, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning through the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would reveal our sins to us this morning so that by your power, by your grace, by your spirit, we may turn away from them through godly grief. Would our focus be on you today and forever. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Second, uh, Second Corinthians, chapter seven, verse ten. Second Corinthians, chapter seven, verse ten is where we're going to be this morning. So please take your copy of God's Word and turn there with me. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, our strike team will come down. You can raise your hand, and they'll hand a Bible out to you. We're on page 563, 563 of the Bibles coming around. So we just finished a short series on Advent, and Lord willing, we will be transitioning back to the Gospel of Luke next week. And again, Lord willing, our goal is to finish the Gospel of Luke and begin the book of Acts uh, this spring. This morning is not either of those things. This morning is just a one-off sermon, uh, and we'll be focusing on, as I said, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To understand our passage today, it'd be helpful just to understand a little bit of background information. 2 Corinthians was written after 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed many things to the church. And one of the things he addressed is in chapter 5, where he addressed a man who was caught in sexual immorality, and he told the church to excommunicate this man, that is, have nothing to do with him. Now, we'll dive into the situation in a little, a little deeper here in a few minutes, but I just wanted to bring that up because in the passage I'm going to read, if you don't have that information, it's not going to make sense. So, with that in mind, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 12, but I'm only preaching on verse 10. I'm just reading that section just to get a little context. So 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 12. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief 
so that you suffered no loss through us. And here's verse 10. This is what I'm going to be focusing on today. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This is God's holy word that cannot and therefore does not fail. I'd like to start with an illustration that I'm borrowing from Ted Tripp, but I'm just going to say it in my own words. And children, I might need your help here a little bit. I want you to imagine a train that is chugging along the tracks. Can you imagine that? A train that's just going on the tracks. Kids, help me out. Chugga, 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 chugga. That was medium okay. We can do that again. Chugga, 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 chugga. All right, thank you. Now, so the train is chugging along nicely when all of a sudden the train gets bumped off the tracks. That's no good, is it? Can a train drive when it is off the tracks? I'm not sure, did you say no? Can a train drive when it is off the tracks? No, it cannot. A train cannot drive, it cannot work when it is off the tracks. It is meant to drive on the tracks. Well, beloved, in, in this sense, God made us similar to trains. He gave us tracks to drive on so that it would go well with us. These tracks are living in line with the way that he designed us to live. That is, according to his word. And you can think of it like this. There are two rails on the tracks of life. One rail is it going well with us from an earthly perspective. That is, it goes better for us when we keep the Sabbath. It goes better for us if we do not murder. And what I don't mean by that is some sort of prosperity gospel. What I mean is that our holiness is what's best for us, no matter our suffering or persecution or anything like that. Our holiness is what's best for us. So that's the first rail. The second rail is our relationship with God. And there is no more important relationship than our relationship with God. And so you have these two rails, and when we sin, we are driving our trains off the tracks, and it will not go well with us for both of those things. In fact, it will not only not go well with us, but if we don't get back on the tracks, it will ultimately lead to our destruction. When you disobey your parents, you're driving your train off the tracks. When you're full of bitterness and unforgiveness, you're driving your train off the tracks. When you look at pornography, you're driving your train off the tracks. When you gossip, you're driving your train off the tracks. When you're not trusting the Lord, you're driving your train off the tracks. When we sin, we are driving our trains off the tracks. And if we don't get back on the tracks, it will lead to our destruction. 
Or to say it in another way, to quote John Owen, you need to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. You need to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. So how do we kill sin? We kill sin through godly grief. We kill sin through godly grief because first, worldly grief produces death, and second, because godly grief produces repentance. So kill sin through godly grief because worldly grief produces death and because godly grief produces repentance. And if you have no idea what those things mean, that's a win for me because we're going to explain what it means. So first point this morning, worldly grief produces death. As we dive in, I'd like to look at a little more background detail in 1 Corinthians 5 to help us understand the truth that worldly grief produces death. And you can turn there if you'd like, 1 Corinthians 5. It was reported to the Apostle Paul that a man in the church was caught in sexual immorality, as I said earlier. I'll spare you the details, but let's just say that this type of sin was so grievous that even people who don't know God, it was not tolerated among them. So Paul says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5 he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul goes on to say that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, Sin is contagious. It can move from one person to the another just like whatever cold is going around our church right now. And so we need to get the sin away from us. And so Paul concludes his thought. He says in verses 11 through 13, Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. And he concludes with this thought, purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. Now note, he's talking about those who are in unrepentant sin, those who have not turned away from their sin and put their faith, or he's saying those who claim to be Christians but are living in open sin and are not repenting of them, purge that evil person from among you. Does that seem harsh? Does that seem harsh? This is where we need to be reminded of the character of God. Our God who sits in the heavens as the sovereign king of the universe is holy, holy, holy. And to be holy is to be set apart from all sin, from all evil, from all unrighteousness. God is holy both in his being and his doing. That is, he is holy in his character, and he is holy in all of his actions. Maybe a helpful way to think about it is like this. Gold is one of the most precious and valuable resources in all the earth. And even gold needs to be refined through fire. And when gold is refined, it is is burnt down into a liquid, and then all of the impurities rise to the surface, and then you skim it off, and then that gold becomes purer. My friends, God doesn't need to skim off the impurities because he is holy in all of his ways. In fact, his holiness is the fire that refines. 
And the God who is holy cannot have fellowship with those who are in unrepentant sin. Because every single sin, no matter how big or small we may think it is, it is an absolute outrage to the holiness of God. Every single sin is grievous in the eyes of the God who is holy. Now, God is not only holy, but he is just in all of his ways. He is the judge of all of the earth, and he will do what is right. And he will by no means clear the guilty. And this means that he must punish every single sin. And therefore, we all deserve the full, just, righteous anger of God for every single one of our sins. Or to say it in another way, you need to be killing sin or God will kill you. For the wages of sin is death. And this is why we need Jesus Christ. We need a Savior who can bear all the wrath of God in our place so that through faith in Christ, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. But the point is, if you are living in unrepentant sin, then you're not living by faith, and you need to seriously consider if you're saved at all. You need to heed this warning from Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is, if we go on sinning on purpose, if we go on sinning without repentance, the text goes on to say, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The holy God cannot have fellowship with those who are in unrepentant sin. So let's go back to the question. Does it seem harsh the way Paul was talking to the, the Corinthians that they are to purge the evil person from among them? Does that seem harsh? No, he's not being harsh. He's being loving. It is the most loving thing that the church can do is to warn someone of the dangers of unrepentant sin. The most loving thing that anybody can do is to say, hey, I see you. You're walking in unrepentant sin. Come back. Come back. Because if you're living in unrepentant sin, beloved, you're on the train to hell. Is it more loving to let you ride to eternal destruction or to call you to come back? I just want to take a moment and pause here and let us thank God for all of the people that we have in our lives who have called us back onto the tracks. The church, our family, our friends, our parents. Children, I want you to look at me for a second. I don't, I don't care if you're 18 months or 18 years old, look at me for a second. When you sin, you are driving your train off the tracks. And the most loving thing that your parents can do is to say, hey, come back. You may hate it. You may despise it because it is hard in the moment. But I challenge you, I lovingly encourage you to just tell your parents, thank you for not letting me ride the train to destruction. 
You are so blessed to have parents who tell you to come back onto the tracks. We need that. And parents, it is our job to direct our children back onto the tracks. Beloved, God takes sin seriously. The church is to take sin seriously, and therefore we should take sin seriously. How seriously do you take your sin? When you sin, are you full of godly grief or worldly grief? And here we get into the distinction of the text. A simple contrast between godly grief and worldly grief can be stated like this. Godly grief is grief over sin that focuses on God. And and note when I'm talking about grief, when this passage is talking about grief, it's not talking about suffering, it's talking about grief over sin. So godly grief is grief over sin that focuses on God. Worldly grief is grief over sin that focuses on the things of the world. So godly grief is grief over sin that focuses on God. Worldly grief is grief over sin that focuses on the things of this world. We'll come back to godly grief in point two. So for now, we'll focus on worldly grief. As I said, and I'll say it again, worldly grief is grief over sin that focuses on the things of this world. And by grief, the text means sadness, sorrow, distress. The issue is not about whether or not there is grief. The issue is, what is the grief about? Worldly grief is sadness that is focused completely on yourself. Worldly grief is sorrow focused on the consequences or the punishment of sin. Worldly grief is distress focused on the loss of the things of this world that your sin may have produced. Keith Lampert says it very helpfully in his book called Finally Free. Um, And I just recommend this book. It's a book on fighting pornography by grace, but the principles in this book can apply to every sin that we're struggling with. But he, he describes worldly grief in this way. And just note that he says worldly sorrow because that's, what the, that's how the NIV translates it. So he's saying the same thing. People experiencing worldly sorrow are distressed because they are losing or fear losing things the world has to offer. The loss could be a reputation, job, money, family, sexual fulfillment, or even access to pornography. Anything that brings them security, comfort, or pleasure. Some of these things are good, and some of these things are sinful, but they are all things, and the emphasis is his. Worldly grief is grief over sin that is focusing on these things of the world. And worldly grief produces death. When you're caught being disobedient to your parents, worldly grief is when you're sad about the consequences. That is, you're sad that you're losing a toy or you're losing out on video game or seeing your friends or whatever it is. Worldly grief is when you're focused on those consequences. When you're caught with bitterness, worldly grief is when you're feeling ashamed of what people might think of you. When you're caught looking at pornography, worldly grief is beating yourself up because you thought that you were better than that. You see the focus is on yourself. 
When you're caught gossiping, worldly grief is being grieved that people may no longer trust you with important information. When you're caught not trusting the Lord during a stressful time, worldly grief is being sad that your image of being a strong Christian may be tarnished. Worldly grief over sin is focused on the things of the world. It is focused on self. When you sin, are you grieved over the loss of the things of the world? Another footnote here. Are you grieved over your sin at all? If you're here this morning and you're not grieved over your sin at all, I plead with you to pray for the Lord to open up your eyes and your heart so that you may be aware of your sin, so that you may, be turn, that you may turn away from it. Because what happens is, is we sin again and again and again and our heart gets so hard that we don't even care. In fact, I just want to pause and pray in the middle of this sermon and pray for you. Father, let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead with you for those who may be here this morning who don't even care about their sin at all, that their hearts have become so hard. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, break down the walls of their heart? Do a mighty miracle right now. Make them aware of the weight of their sin and help them to turn away from their sin and turn to you by faith. Save them, Lord, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. So coming back to my question, when you sin, are you grieved over the things of this world? If so, this is worldly grief. And worldly grief produces death. And the word that's being used here for death has more than just physical death in mind. The word here is referring to eternal death. It's referring to spiritual death. And it means that worldly grief leads to a spiritual break in relationship with God that will lead to an eternity in hell. This is very serious business here because your eternal life could be at stake. But it leads to a question. Why does worldly grief produce death? It's because if you are grieved over the loss of the things of this world when you sin, you're actually not repentant. And if you're not repentant, then you're not saved. And if you're not saved, then that will lead to eternal death. So this might be, here's another helpful way to think about it. We need to know what repentance is. Repentance is when you turn your train back onto the tracks. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning to Christ by faith. And repentance and faith go hand in hand. You can think about it like this. Let's just say sin is this way. And if I'm walking in my sin, I'm walking in this direction. No offense to you over here. This is just an illustration. <laughs> Charlie gives me the look. But let's just say for sake of illustration, sin is walking this way. And every time I sin, I'm taking a step this way and this way. And let's just say for sake of illustration, Christ is over here. Repentance is turning away from your sin, and when you turn away from something, you're automatically turning towards something else. So repentance is turning away from your sin. Faith is turning to Christ and believing 
in all that he is in the Bible. Okay, so, so that's repentance. You're not actually repentant when you're filled with worldly grief because if sin is this way and you're concerned and you're sad over the loss of the things of this world or you're sad about what it may mean for you or your reputation or whatever it is, you're not actually turning around. You go from sin to focusing on yourself, which is actually taking a step this way and not turning away from your sin and turning to Christ. In other words, if you're driving your train off the tracks this way and you're not turning away, that's going to lead to your destruction. That is how worldly grief produces death. You will never kill your sin through worldly grief because you cannot. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with the same sin over and over and over again, I encourage you to consider, is it because you're struggling with worldly grief? You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We kill sin through godly grief because worldly grief produces death and godly grief produces repentance. So second point this morning, godly grief produces repentance. So as we said, worldly grief is grief over sin that is focused on the things of the world. Then godly grief is grief over sin that is focused on God. And again, there's real grief here. It's the same word. There's sadness and sorrow and distress. The difference is, what is the grief focused on? Godly grief over sin is grief that is focused on God. Godly grief is grieve that you've sinned against the God of the universe. Godly grief is grieve that your sin damages your relationship with God. Godly grief is grieve that you're not living how God wants you to. The emphasis is on God. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you like or enjoy the consequences of sin. It's just that those consequences, whatever they may be, they're not the motivation for the grief. They're not the motivation for turning away from your sin. Now, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11 gives us multiple characteristics of godly grief. Um, and I'd encourage you to study them on your own time. But what I thought would be more helpful is giving you a case study so that you could see what this looks like in real time and so that you can have some language for godly grief. One of the best examples of godly grief comes from King David. King David severely sinned against the Lord by committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he turned around and murdered her husband. Two grievous sins in the eyes of God. And when he was caught and convicted of his sin by Nathan the prophet, he responded with Psalm 51, which Steph read for us earlier. And I'm just going to look at a few of the verses in Psalm 51. We don't have time to go through all of them. Um, that would be a sermon on Psalm 51, which would be great, which, Lord willing, we're going to do this summer. So come back this summer. But notice how David in his grief over his sin, is focused on God. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
He runs to God, knowing that it is only God who can forgive him. Because God, in his character, is abounding in steadfast love. He is abounding in mercy. Verses 3 through 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The focus is so much on God. He's so focused on God that he says, it is only against you, God, that I have sinned. He's concerned that he's done what is evil in God's sight. And he's concerned that God would be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. His focus is completely on God. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is grieved that his sin might cast him away from the presence of God. Godly grief is focused on losing relationship with God. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knows that his joy comes from the salvation of God and not in the things of the world that he will be losing because of his sin. And my friends, David loses some serious things because of this sin. He loses a child, and one of his uh, relationships with one of his children is like completely damaged because of this. But he's not focused on the loss of the things of the world. He's focused on the joy of God's salvation, so much so that he continues in verse 13 and says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David is so focused on God that he desires to be forgiven so that then he can go and tell others about the joy of salvation in God. This is such a helpful example uh, because we see David again and again focusing on God. And if you need like a pattern for godly grief, go to Psalm 51. This is godly grief over sin. And godly grief produces repentance. When you're convicted of disobeying your parents, godly grief is being sad because you've sinned against the God who gave you parents. When you're convicted of bitterness, godly grief is being distressed that you've lost sight of God's forgiveness of your sin. When you're convicted of pornography, godly grief is being grieved that you've sinned against God and God alone. When you're convicted of gossip, Godly grief is being concerned that you've damaged the well-being of someone that God loves. When you're convicted of not trusting the Lord, godly grief is being sorrowful that you didn't trust the God who feeds the birds and clothes the grass of the field. Godly grief is focused on God. And godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. All right, so now we've seen worldly grief is bad. Godly grief is good. How do we move from worldly grief to godly grief? How do we go from focusing on the things of this world to focusing on God? This transformation is only possible through the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, this idea, the expulsive power of a new affection, my wife is laughing at me because she's like, nobody knows what that means. I'll explain it. 
The Expulsive Power of a New Affection is a sermon that was preached by Thomas Chalmers in 1819, uh, and it's been published into a little book, one of the Crossway Short Classics. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, required reading for RCI. If anyone wants to attend RCI, you can come and do that. But anyways, the expulsive power of a new affection is simply this. We all have something deep down in our hearts that we love the most. The most effective way to get rid of sin is to love God more than we love the things of this world. In other words, to move from worldly grief to godly grief is to love God more than we love the things of the world. And to love God more than the things of the world, our minds need to be renewed, our hearts need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. And this is not just like a pull yourself up by the bootstraps or a try harder solution. You need the power of God to change your heart so that you would love God more than the things of the world. And God uses the proclamation of the truth of who he is to do this. That's one of the main ways that he does this. And so let me remind you and let me proclaim to you this morning that the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, is greater than anything this world has to offer. God is all-glorious, and from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Nothing in the world is as glorious as God. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Nothing in this world comes even close. God is eternally unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing in this world will ever stay the same. God knows all things and nothing in this world can compare to his knowledge, not even AI or chat, GTP, or whatever it is. God knows all things. And God has the power over all things. There's nothing in this world that can compare to the power of God. God is sovereign over all things, and he works all things together for his glory and for the good of his people. Nothing in the world can do that. God is everywhere all the time, and through Christ Jesus, we can have access to the throne room of grace 24-7. There's nothing in the world that can offer you that. God in his character is far greater than anything this world has to offer. And I haven't even proclaimed the gospel yet. That God in his sovereign goodness sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be humiliated by being born in the likeness of men, by living a perfectly righteous life in this fallen world, by dying the death that we deserve. And then he was exalted by being resurrected from the grave, by ascending into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead. And it is through Christ that we can, can, that we can confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us. Through Christ, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Through Christ, he blots out all of our transgressions. Through Christ, God washes us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanses us from our unrighteousness. Through Christ, our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. Jesus is for sin, the double cure. He saves from wrath and he makes us pure. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe 
Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? There's nothing in this world that can offer you that. Nothing. Another way to think about it is what Robert Murray McShane said. He said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at your sin, and you do need to look at your sin, you need to be aware of it, you need, to be no, you need to know what's going on deep into your heart, but for every one look at your sin, you need to take ten looks at the glorious Christ. And that is how you move from worldly grief to godly grief. If we love the things of this world more than we love God, then we will have worldly grief over our sin. But if we love God more than the things of this world, then we will have a godly grief for our sin. And note here that the question is not if you will struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin, myself included. I, I hope that you haven't got the picture that I'm perfect because I am not. I need godly grief and I've been pleading for it. The question is not if you will struggle with sin. The question is how are you trying to kill sin? We need to kill sin by loving God more than we love the things of this world. Kill sin through godly grief because godly grief produces repentance. As I said before, repentance is turning away from your sin and faith is turning to Christ and believing all that he is for you in the gospel and repentance and faith are connected to one another. Godly grief produces true repentance because godly grief actually turns you away from your sin and turns you to God. It turns you away from focusing on yourself so that you can focus on Christ. That's why godly grief produces true repentance. And so with that, how do we repent? What does repentance practically look like? How do we practically drive our trains back on the tracks? Now, some of you probably know what I'm going to say because I've said it before. We use the CAR acronym. This also comes from Heath Lampert in his book, Finally Free. Um, I know I've said this before, but I think it's so important that um, we need to hear it at least 30 times a year. So, Happy New Year. This is probably by far the most significant thing that I've used in my Christian life. So, when we repent, we can use the CAR acronym, confess, affirm, and request. Confess, so C is for confess. Confess your sins to God. Be honest, be open, be detailed. Try to get to the heart. Lord, forgive me because I did this thing and this is why I did it, if you can get to the heart of things. Be honest and open with him. 
knowing that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So C is confess. A is affirm. Affirm who Christ is for you. And this is where we can get lost because we can get stuck spinning our wheels in circles because we confess our sins, but then we forget who God is, we forget who Christ is, and then we try to live it out on our own strength. We don't have to do that. We can affirm who Christ is for us in the gospel. And you can be as detailed as you want. Sometimes when my heart is just struggling, I just go bananas over this. That in Christ, my guilt has been taken away. I said a lot of these earlier, but my guilt is taken away. My sin is atoned for. Through Christ, I have been saved to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for me. Through Christ, my sins have been propitiated and the full wrath of God has been appeased. Through Christ, my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Through Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for me. Affirm those things. Believe them because if you are a believer, those are true of you. That's what the Bible says Christ is for you. So the A is affirm who Christ is for you. And the R is request. Ask for God's help. You don't have to do this on your own. In fact, you can't. Ask for God to help you. And this is a sample of what my requesting looks like. Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit because I cannot do this on my own. Fill me with your spirit so that I have the power to turn away from sin and believe in you and live for you. Fill me with your spirit so that I may not give in to temptation today. And often I'll go into, I'm, I'm probably going to be tempted in these specific ways today. Protect me. Deliver me from the evil one. Spirit, f- fill me so that I may have the fruit of the spirit today. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ask for God to help you to turn away from sin. And he will. He will answer that prayer. So how do we repent? We repent by confessing our sins, affirming who Christ is for us, and requesting God's help to turn away from sin. Beloved, you need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Worldly grief produces death, Therefore, we need to kill sin through godly grief because godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so every time you drive your train off the tracks through sin, come back onto the tracks through repentance and godly grief. I have a whole bunch of random bonus thoughts, but I'm just going to stop and I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are by far more glorious and greater and better than anything that this world has to offer. In fact, even the best of what this world has to offer is just a small reflection of you because you created it. And we can't even see it fully because we have fallen, tainted glasses through which we see the world. God, would you help us by the power of your Spirit to see the world through the lens of your Word so that we may see you for who you are in all of your glory and so that by the power of your Spirit we may turn away from our sin through godly grief and turn running into the arms of Jesus who is gentle and lowly 
God, again, I, I pray for anyone here who might be so hardened by sin that you would enable them powerfully to turn away from their sin and come to you. I pray for those who may be struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. Would they take one look at their sin and take ten looks at Christ? And would they see you, Jesus, for all of who you truly are? And would you empower them by your spirit and the truth of your word to turn away from sin and, and turn to you? Would this be the year, would this be the day that they finally break free of sin and finally rest deeply in your sovereign good grace? We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.